You're listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. If you've got a Bible, please would you turn it to Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 7. We are in our second um, sermon in this uh, series called uh, Vision and Impact as we look at the different things that we're doing as a church and how we want to reach and impact uh, the, uh, the northwest and beyond for the sake of the gospel. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 15 verses 1 to 7. I'll read it for you now. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Eric. And hi, everyone. That was a quick change, but it's good to be back with you. It's one of those moments where you've done a quick change and you have to look down just to check that you're still wearing your trousers. So um, I'm trusting that that's going to be okay. Um, but what a, what a Sunday. I don't think we've ever baptised three from the same family um, in one service. And so what a privilege it is to have been here, uh, to witness that, to be a part of that. And it's great to be with you on, as Eric said, this is the second of, the th- of three in this very special series that we have looking at um, our vision for the year to come. What is this church all about? So a massive welcome to you if you are new to City Church. You have come at the perfect time to give a flavour of what's it going to be like to be at City Church. And if you are a regular City Churcher, then brilliant, because this is going to tell you something about what's coming your way in the life of the church. So let me pray, and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, I do thank you that you are a good God, that your kindness, your lavish grace to us is experienced here as we gather, that you are a God who communicates to us, that you know every single person in this room. You know the details of our life, where we've come from. You know the details of the life where we're going in the week to come. And so we trust that as your word is open now, you have something to say to every single one of us here. And so I pray that we would be undistracted. I pray that you would give us soft hearts to hear your voice. And I pray, empowered by your Holy Spirit, you would enable us to respond as you would have us. Amen. So last week we introduced three big ideas that kind of Uh, give a structure for what we're about as a church in the coming year. Number one was invitation. We want to be a church that is inviting people to know the Lord Jesus, inviting people to experience the power of God and have their lives changed as they engage with the gospel. Number two, uh, we want to be a church next year that is all about intimacy, 
most particularly intimacy with our God. We don't want to just be busy for our Lord. We want to know him deeply. We want to enjoy a living and vibrant relationship with him. And thirdly, and you're going to hear about this um, a little bit later, we want to be a church that invests, where investment in what God is doing in mission right across the world is something that we're passionate about and something that if you're a city church, you're thinking, actually, I want my time, my talent, my treasure to be involved in seeing God's work multiplied across the globe. But of course, invitation, intimacy, and investment, they're all interlinked, they're all interweaved. You can't just take one without the other. And I want to show you a passage today, the passage that Eric's just read, that really picks up on that. It's a passage that many of you will be familiar with, the parable of the lost sheep. The word parable basically means a short story that carries a deep meaning. But I want to say this to you from the very beginning This parable, though it's familiar, it's not what you think. It's not what you think. In fact, I think that this parable is one of the most radically subversive of all of the stories that Jesus tells. So in other words, if you don't want your polite, well-ordered life to be disrupted in any way, well, close your ears now. Close your ears now. For the rest of you, let's dive in. I've got two points. The first one's this, an absurd investment. An absurd investment. So Luke opens this account of this parable by introducing us to two groups. These are the two groups that Jesus is talking to. Look with me at verse one. We have on one side tax collectors and sinners. Now, we're not told precisely what sin these sinners had done. All that we know is if they're hanging out with the tax collectors, well, these guys aren't going to be the popular clique in the playground because they're connected with the tax collectors. And, you know, tax collecting in the history of world civilization has never been a popular job. But the nature of it is if you were there in the first century in Judea, tax collecting was awful. Because if you were a tax collector, you were basically working with the Romans against your own people and you would collect money for the Romans, but you'd also have your little bit on the side. You would charge people a little bit extra that would go straight into your pocket. And so if you were a tax collector, it was synonymous with being absolutely exploitative of the poorest and the most vulnerable in society. And so understandably, tax collectors were absolutely hated. They kind of had the social reputation of someone on a sex offenders register uh, and someone who would be a payday loan company employee. That's the type of reputation a tax collector would have had. They were absolutely despised. But the second group over here who were also watching Jesus, these were, the, these were the Pharisees. You see, these were the old school spiritual elite. They were versed, they were fluent in the Old Testament. They know their scriptures backwards. But these guys hated the Romans. And they would have been on the back row as smug as anything in the knowledge that because of their good works, that they would be 
absolutely fine. You see, these guys, these Pharisees believed if anyone could make God smile, if anyone could make God happy, it would be them. Because all you needed to do is you needed to tick the boxes, do the right thing at the right time consistently enough, and that way God would delight in you. He would love you. And whatever happened to these guys over here, who cares? Because you would be absolutely fine. And so you've got these two groups who are all looking at Jesus. And Jesus, right in the middle there, well, at this point, he would have been like the new influential kid on the block. And the question around Jerusalem is, would Jesus, would he kind of like be in the gang with the Pharisees or would Jesus kind of be in the gang with the tax collectors and sinners? And if you were there, then word on the street in Jerusalem is it looked like Jesus seemed to be hanging out with the tax collectors and sinners more. That's what verse two tells us. And the Pharisees over here, they absolutely hated it. And so you've got two groups side by side and the tension is rising. And we're only in two verses into this parable. What is Jesus going to say? Well, look with me at verse 3. It says this. So he told them a parable. Now, this is an option that you may well consider if you're caught between two rival gangs on Piccadilly Gardens on a Sunday night. You could try telling them a parable. Don't quote me on that if it doesn't work out well for you, but try it. It's in the Bible. But I think actually this story that Jesus tells, I think this is one of the most hilarious stories that you'll find in the whole of the New Testament. Look with me. He starts off by saying, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And I, You know, you get a sense, don't you, when you read that, that Jesus is saying it like it is the most obvious thing in the world. If you lose your one sheep, you go and find it. But actually, I think the joke is, in reality, that is the last thing that you would do. You see, think about it like this. The owner of 100 sheep, you're not poor, if you own 100 sheep. You're not rich either. We're not talking about kind of like rich like Bezos or Musk or something like that, but you're not poor. You're somewhere in the middle. And if on the occasion that one of your sheep does go missing, and notice that Jesus is deliberately using the smallest possible loss that he could, just one solitary sheep, 1% of the total stock Would it have been wise to leave the other 99% of your stock in, as we're told in our passage, open country? Meaning that it was prey to wolves or lions and the stupidity of other sheep just wandering around. Is that the wisest thing to do, to spend hours in order to find just one sheep, an ancient Near Eastern equivalent of some form of manhunt or kind of mutton hunt, whatever you want to call it. 
But actually, I I think this is where the shepherd in Jesus' story starts to turn heads. Look with me at the second half of verse 4. In Jesus' story, the shepherd, look, he actually does leave the 99 sheep out in open country, vulnerable to wolves and lions and all sorts of other beasts and robbers, and he goes after his missing mutton chop. This is funny stuff. You see, there was a, um, there was a TV show a number of years ago. I, I'm, you couldn't even film it these days. I think the risk assessments would be too far through the roof. And the idea was it was meant to be kind of like a TV social experiment documentary where they gave a whole bunch of teenagers a toddler to look after. You know, it sounds fun, doesn't it? It sounds fun. And so they, you follow them during this kind of docu-series where the teenagers who are meant to be looking after the toddlers, they give them sugar before bedtime and then wonder why the kids aren't settling down. The teenagers get bored, want to go to sleep themselves or go and play video games and they just let the toddlers play by themselves in the kitchen with any fun things they can find there. You get the idea, it's very dramatic, very exciting. But imagine a situation where the teenagers all decided to take the toddlers they were looking after and go for a picnic in the park. It sounds very reasonable, doesn't it? But imagine in the situation that one of those toddlers wanders off. Tragic. But what happens if all of the teenagers decide to leave the other toddlers they were looking after in the open park in order for the teenagers to go and find that one child? All of them gone, just leaving the rest of the toddlers to wander away. You'd be thinking, this is a nightmare on every front. What are you doing? Well, let me put it like this. Imagine a small business owner comes into a massive stock, spends a fortune on the, the nearest and dearest high-tech smartphone. And they go from the depot, they pack their car with all of these brand new things. They're on the way to market. They get to the market. The street is absolutely packed with people. And they set up the store. You know, 5G, high-def cameras for this, swipe for that, everything you could imagine. They set it all up and then they suddenly realize, ah, I left one of the brand new phones on the pavement when I was packing the car back at the depot. And imagine the business owner says to themselves, ah, I've got to go. I've got to pick up that phone that was left behind. And so they leave all of the other phones in their merchandise all there on the market, just unattended, whilst they get back in their van and drive off to find that one phone that was left behind. You'd be saying to that person, are you mad? Well, that's the ridiculousness of the story that Jesus seems to be telling here. I I just feel like the crowds at this point would have been laughing. I mean, it's Jesus' description of the what not to do shepherding guide, isn't it? And it would have been funny. You can imagine in a mixed gathering of the, the sinners and tax collectors and the Pharisees, the saints and the sinners who were once kind of sneering at each other, actually joining forces to laugh, to snigger, even to mock Jesus' shepherd. But Jesus doesn't end there. Look with me at verse 5. 
The eccentric shepherd, that's what I'm calling him, the eccentric shepherd, amazingly, he finds his sheep. Hooray, you can imagine both sides. Tax collectors and sinners, Pharisees, all kind of giving a right cheer. Hooray! And then look what happens next. If we can excuse the carrying of the sheep on the shepherd's shoulder, look what Jesus says in verse 6. Then he calls his friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. Now I think at this point the crowd would have been absolutely wetting themselves at this point. This would have been kind of worthy of a Netflix comedy special. The idea that a shepherd at this time would throw a party for finding a lost sheep would have been absurd regardless of the effort of the shepherd. Think about it like this. In ancient Near Eastern, first century hospitality, we're not talking a party that was simply kind of nibbles, cheese straws, you know, kind of um, small cocktail sausages on sticks. We're talking feast. We're talking friends, neighbours, community. We're talking wine flowing. We're talking absolute generous hospitality. Everyone's come to celebrate this finding of the sheep. In fact, the expense of the party in most likelihood would have cost more than the value of the sheep itself. What an absurd investment of resources on one stupid sheep. Look, it would have been, it would have been like, like this. This is a tragic story. A number of years ago, I lost... I lost my passport. That's right, people. That's right. I can feel the sadness in the room. I searched everywhere for it. I couldn't find it. But then I, I looked in a place, as is so often that I looked before, and there it was. And hooray! I found my passport. Now, imagine in that situation, what a relief I can see. Some of you, are, you know, you were nervous about that. I found it. It's fine. Calm. Imagine... Um, I get my passport and I, I kind of ring, you know, some of my friends. You know, I kind of ring Eric and Ralph and Tessa and I say, hey, guys, I've, I, I've booked a table for, for 20 people. I want you guys to come. It's at Manor, Manchester's only Michelin star restaurant to date. You know, per person for the set course menu, you're looking about 200 pounds. It's very, very nice. And I say, hey, you've got to come to Manor. I've got a table for 20. And they're like, that's incredible. Why are you being so generous? What happened? I found my passport. And, you know, I'm staying there making a toast and I'm saying to everyone, I'm so glad you can make it and share in my joy. Uh, you know, I found my passport and as we're sitting there noshing into this Michelin star, I say, I'm so delighted. I saved 80 quid there, that would, have been, that would have been mean, wouldn't it? That would have been mean, as we're noshing down on very expensive food. What you would say to me, I'm actually, Matt, you're an absolute fool. But isn't that the situation here? It's, it's quite frankly ridiculous. A shepherd holding a party on account of a sheep. You see, whether the crowd thought that Jesus was a madman or a messiah, they would have said to this side, this guy is good. Oh, he's very good. He is very funny. This stand-up comedian from Nazareth, we've got to hear him again. But it's a ridiculous story. 
He's like the Mr. Bean of shepherding. He's like the Alan Partridge of livestock. Laughs, smirks, chuckling from the crowd. It's ridiculous, though. All funny, isn't it? Until we get to verse 7, when it stops being funny altogether. And you could imagine Jesus suddenly face from laughter breaks into seriousness and he looks both groups in the eye and he delivers the actual real punchline of this entire story. Do you see it there in verse seven? I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So I think this one statement turns laughter to silence. You see, Jesus gives, in one moment of a twist, he gives unexpected hope to all of the spiritual outsiders. And he utterly pulls the rug from the religious elite. You see, the Pharisees were the professional God-pleasers. These were the experts who knew how to put a smile on God's face You see, for them, pleasing God was just a matter of doing the right things frequently enough, crossing the T's, dotting the I's, making sure that you did your part for God and then like a vending machine, God would do his part for you. Very transactional. I wonder if you... I wonder if you have a spiritual faith like that where you think actually your actions, your behaviour, your spiritual life can manipulate God like a vending machine to giving you what you want the job, the relationship, the life change. You see, the Pharisees, they were like the Manchester City, the treble-winning victors of religious high achievement. And in one verse, in one punchline, it all falls down. Because you can see in verse 7 it suddenly becomes absolutely horrifying for the Pharisees that if obeying the letter of the law was not going to please God, that actually everything that the Pharisees had built their spiritual confidence on was obsolete. Their efforts futile, their results worthless. And you see, whereas the Pharisees thought that God was impersonal, Jesus was teaching in this parable that actually the God of the Bible longs for relationship. He longs for intimacy, even with those whose lives are an utter mess. He looks for them, he searches for them, he brings them home. And incredibly, he forgives them because it's the only way to have a a restored relationship with God is to be forgiven of everything you've ever done wrong. And the God of the Bible loves them and wants to rescue them regardless of their social value, regardless of their spiritual achievement, regardless of how productive they are. Have you ever heard of anything so radical as that? In fact, you could say that the forgiveness that Jesus is talking about here, because the only way you can be rescued is first to be forgiven, You could say that this rescue is frankly scandalous. In fact, you could say that the real offence of Christianity in our culture is not that Christianity is too exclusive for people, 
actually, isn't the offense of Christianity that Christianity is too inclusive of people? The God who is prepared to forgive the um, murderer or forgive the rapist or forgive the utterly anti-Christian God-hater if they should turn to him and with every sincerity in their heart say, I am sorry, I am sorry, I am sorry, please forgive me. Isn't it offensive to believe in a God who just says repent and believe and that's how you come home? You see, a God who is prepared to forgive the world's greatest underachievers rather than rewarding the tryhards or those who say, look, I've made something of myself because I've endured a difficult childhood or cancer, or any number of hard things. Therefore, I should be allowed in to heaven. Does a God who, who only cares about people turning to him because they love him and they trust him and they long to be forgiven by him, doesn't that make the lavishness of the invitation of the God of the Bible doesn't that make you uncomfortable? Isn't that a little bit too generous? In fact, isn't that offensive enough for Jesus to be cancelled? In fact, isn't it offensive enough for Jesus to be killed? So let me ask you this, for those of you who perhaps have put your trust in Jesus for many years and yet are still persistent reoffenders, Has the radical nature of forgiveness, has the radical nature of the gospel of grace, has that become dull to you? Have you become overly familiar with it? Has it lost its offense and controversy to you? If you're a believer here today, and I know many of you are, how do you make sense of verse seven? That momentarily draws back the very curtain of heaven itself and shows us that there are more angelic beings losing their minds in excitement over the one sinner who repents and turns to Jesus than over 99 people who always recycle their rubbish, who always tip 20% to their delivery rider, who always repost charity appeals on their own social media, or who come to church just out of dry obedience because that is the right thing to do. God knows every single shameful moment of your life and yet he trades everything that he has to find you and bring you home. Has that become boring to you? What an absurd investment. 
I want you to let that hang in the air a little bit because I know for some of you here, you don't believe that you can be loved at all, even as much as your friends might tell you otherwise. So how are you going to believe this, which is so much bigger? Well, come to our final second point. It's very short, and it's this, an extraordinary invitation. You see, it'd be very easy to leave this parable, wouldn't it? Feeling pretty satisfied. You know, we've survived the heat wave and storm, most of us, on this Sunday. You know, the sheep has been found. Jesus has been hilarious. The Pharisees have got a good kick up the backside, and we could all leave happy, right? Maybe get home quicker and, you know, dump our heads in an ice bucket or something like that. Job well done on a Sunday afternoon. But it's a powerful story, isn't it? Isn't it more than just a powerful story? Do you know, I think it's powerful because it speaks to the very core of a longing deep inside every single one of us. This week, I I heard a quote from a guy called Dr. Kurt Thompson. And he said something that's got stuck in my head and I can't seem to get it out. And I've just been turning it over in my mind for the last few days. And he said this, We're all born looking for someone who is looking for us. We're all born looking for someone who is looking for us. Isn't that intriguing? And Dr. Kurt Thompson went on to say, and somewhere along the way, we believe we must earn that gaze, not just from God the Father, but from the world too. And so our eyes dart, dart, dart. Will you love me? How about you? How about you? What tricks must I do? What hoops must I jump through? We control, we manipulate, we perform and beg. Do you see me now? Do you see me now? Are you looking, are you looking for me now? And when we discover that we, when we discover that we can't hold the world's gaze We build walls of self-protection. We put up signs in front of our hearts that say, no entry beyond this point. And we guard. And we play the game of social progress and expectations. And we say we're fine because to say anything else is just too risky. I find that painfully true, do you? We're all born looking for someone who is looking for us. You see, I think this is exactly why the parable of the lost sheep is so radical. But it's also why the parable of the lost sheep is so wonderful. Do you see that? Could it be true, could it be possibly true that the the only person who knows the absolute mess and disaster of my life and yours is also the only person who's actually looking for us because they love us. If that is true, that is absolutely wonderful. But if that is true, it's utterly life-changing, isn't it? But can you hold on to that? Can you actually believe that? Let me tell you a story, actually, that I heard from 
Tessa's grandfather a number of years ago. He told a story that back in the Vietnam War, um, an American pilot was flying over the, the jungle that was uh, kind of in the control of the enemy for him, called the Viet Cong. And during his um, reconnaissance flight, his plane was shot down and the plane crashed into the jungle. And the Americans sent out a search party for him uh, and they couldn't find him. Couldn't find him anywhere. Eventually, the news got back to his home in America and they told his family, we're terribly sorry, Daniel's plane was shot down and he's missing in action. His brother, Donald, who loved his brother so, so deeply, was absolutely devastated, heartbroken when he heard the news. So much so that he sold nearly everything he owned and traded it in order to cover the expenses to get to Vietnam, go to the jungle where his brother was last seen, and to search for his brother. Before he left, he got printed loads of flyers with a picture of his brother Daniel and a picture of the aeroplane that he was flying when it was crashed um, with a translation in English and in Vietnamese. And he wandered through the jungle giving the flyers to anyone he met. Have you seen my brother? Have you seen my brother? Have you seen my brother? That's how much he loved him. It's a heartbreaking story, even for the Viet Cong, who knew he was there, but they wouldn't touch him because they knew he was just there looking for his brother because he loved him that much. Donald never found his brother, and so that story is only ever a tragedy. But you know, Just as if you had been in the Viet Cong jungle in the 1960s, you would have seen Donald there looking. 2,000 years before that, if you'd been in Jerusalem, you would have found Jesus looking for you. You see, Jesus didn't sell up things that we would count as valuable in the 21st century, but he left the palace of heaven to become one of us, taking up poverty by being born into a manger. And in order to find us, in order to discover us in our own mess, he chose to give up not his possessions, but his own life, so that when we were found, we could be forgiven, so that we could come home with him. Not to a home in this side of life, but to the new creation where there's no more tears, no more crying, no more death, no more pain so that we who put our trust in him would always know we're going to home. You see, you're invited to come home with Jesus. And if you've never done that, I invite you to come home with him tonight. And if you wanna come home, you come by faith, by simply saying, I am sorry for all that I've done wrong, and I trust you that Jesus, you have forgiven me on the cross. Baptism, as we've seen today, is a symbol. It's just a symbol. But what a wonderful symbol of walking through the front door 
to the place that you've always longed to be but have never known how to get to. You see, this is a wonderful story. It's got invitation, it's got intimacy, and it's got investment. It's all here. And it's wonderful, isn't it? It's absolutely wonderful. But let me ask you this. Is it wonderful enough to change your life tonight? Is it wonderful enough to change your life even this week? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you as the one who sent the Lord Jesus to look for us. A moment in real history where he searched for us and when he found us, he gave up his entire life, his reputation, his comfort to die on a cross so that we who trust him could be forgiven, not temporarily but permanently, that we would know we would always be coming home to you. Father, I pray that if we have never heard that before, we would for the first time put our trust in that and know that we are safe. And if we have heard that a million times before, I pray that tonight it would not be dull to us, but would lead us at the very depth of our heart with the Holy Spirit crying, Abba, Father, to lead us to love you, delight in you and devote our lives to praise you. Amen.